please be advised, this is an open and candid conversation. This episode contains mature content that may not be suitable for young listeners. Also, there is disparaging language in the form of name calling used by my guests and telling of his experiences. This language is allowed so the guests can tell his story authentically. And I would like to talk to my parents. I can only imagine now as a parent, they probably had no idea what to say. Like I was so open. I'm like, what does that mean? What's, is that bad? Is that wrong? Does that make me? And I can't remember what words I used when I was younger. As soon as I was aware of the word gay, I probably was like wondering, am I gay? So I grew up in a Catholic family. Both of my parents grew up Roman Catholic. And so I became the best darn Mormon that you could ever be, you know? I thought that the only secure life that I could have would be marriage with the woman. When, you know, when it talks about how Jesus is like, look, in as much as you've done it unto these the least, my people, you've done it unto me. Well, who is that? Podcast, getting real, emotion in truth, intersecting hard conversations with the gospel. I am your host, Rabrina Reddle, and we seek and speak the truth about what's going on around us. Today's conversation is coming from a place of seeking to understand. When I worked in the corporate world, we were provided with a Franklin Covey planner as part of the job orientation and a class titled Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, based on the book by Dr. Stephen R. Covey. Now, it's been many, many years since I've taken that class, but as I pondered having this conversation, habit number five came to mind. On his website, Dr. Covey states, if I were to summarize in one sentence the single most important principle I have learned in the field of interpersonal relations, It would be this, seek first to understand, then to be understood. According to Dr. Covey, most of us don't listen with the intent to understand. Instead, we listen with the intent to reply. He goes on to give a few examples. One is evaluating, which means we judge and then either agree or disagree. Two would be probing. We ask questions from our own frame of reference. Three would be advising. We give counsel, advice, and solutions to problems. I am so guilty of that one. Four would be interpreting. We analyze others' motives and behaviors based on our own experiences. Actually, if I'm honest with myself, I'm guilty of all four. I've been doing some healing work, which has given me a much more compassionate and empathetic view of myself and others. So I decided I'm going to extend that compassion and empathy in my conversations about matters where I have any preconceived 
or uh, notions or perceptions or even assumptions that I have about other people or circumstances. I'm going to use Dr. Covey's method of listening with the intent to understand today. And no matter where you stand on this, I'm asking you to do the same. This is not a debate or apologetics. June is Pride Month, which is a time to recognize, acknowledge, and affirm members of the LGBTQIA community and their contributions to society and the world. However, its original organizers chose this month, which started as a protest and remembrance of lives lost in the Stonewall Uprising, which occurred in June 1969 in New York City. I encourage you to Google that. Today, I'm interviewing a man who is multi-talented and multifaceted. After our initial conversation, I found his story complex, robust, but most of all, human. My guest is Dr. John Spilker. John is a minister of music and liturgy, social justice and leadership at First United Methodist Church. He is an associate professor at Nebraska Wesleyan University, where he teaches courses in music, culture, and history with an emphasis on gender equity, racial justice, and care pedagogy, which is a holistic approach to teaching. John is a gay divorced parent who enjoys travel, swimming laps, reading, yoga, and compassionate conversations. And I can attest to the last part because we've had one of those conversations. And my hope is that today we can continue to have a compassionate conversation. Thanks for joining me today, sitting and having this conversation with me. I love that your bio says that you appreciate compassionate conversations. And I'm hoping that's what we can have today. So let's, let's talk about when we met well, we had met a couple of times, but when we actually sat down and had a conversation with each other and how we realized we had so much in common. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it was amazing. I mentioned to you, like, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and you nodded. And so I was like, oh, Lombard. <laughs> <laughs> right. I went, oh, yeah, I know Lombard because I was born in Chicago. And so I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's cool. And then we found out that we're both from military families. Your yeah, dad, my dad was in the Air Force. Right. That was cool. And my uh, stepfather was in the Army. We just kind of started connecting dots. And we're like, wow, this is so cool. And then we just started having a conversation. And it just flowed very organically. And then we ended up going over time. We, we started kind of late to our next thing because we were talking so much. But yeah, I just think it's kind of cool how you don't know a person and then when you get to know them, you're like, wow, we have all these things in common from afar. And I would have never known if I hadn't sat down and had a conversation with you. Yeah, it was amazing too. And amazing to think about the ways that, I, I mean, just right off the bat, I, I felt so comfortable talking with you about commonalities around unearthing and unpacking trauma. It was, it was just such a wonderful way to come together. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we both have experienced some trauma and your interest is in trauma work and help. And so is mine now. And so it's like, wow, it's just really neat how we were kind of joined together. But I want to start by telling me a little bit about your childhood, actually telling our listeners, because we, you and I had this conversation. So let's talk about your childhood. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a Catholic family. Both of my parents grew up Roman Catholic. You know, they were married in a, you know, a traditional Catholic marriage. And, you know, I grew up outside of Nebraska. And so the Catholic church is, is different from what I'm understanding inside of Nebraska as it, as it is outside. And, you know, growing up, I remember in fifth grade, I was aware that my mom was being hospitalized. I and that's the first time that I was aware that it was for, for mental health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her diagnosis now is bipolar. And I, I don't know what it was before, but, you know, in the 80s and 90s, mental health was just becoming known. And, you know, there, there were multiple times that she had to be hospitalized. And I think in, in sixth grade is when I was aware that she was being hospitalized for a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. And... And then when I was in 11th grade is when like, like it was a serious, really serious suicide. I think before we knew it was because she was suicidal in in 11th grade, it was a suicide attempt. And my dad like woke up in the middle of the night because he was the pharmacist at the Air Force Base. He was like, those are old pill bottles. What what are they doing? And, you know, he tried to rouse her and, and she wouldn't wake up. And so she was in ICU for a while. That was like the night before a concert. And, you know, he called her fam, you know, after he called 911 and got to the hospital, he called her family. And, you know, she was terribly abused as a child and, you know, abuse was just passed down to her. And when they got to the hospital, I'll, I'll never forget that. Like my dad, like her parents got to the hospital and started verbally abusing both of us. And so my dad just like, yeah, like ran into the back and they had to get like people to, you know, security to keep my grandparents civil and at bay. And it's like, Wow, you know, because my dad took really good care of us mm-hmm. as as a family. And I think me now looking back, I realize, wow, you know, my dad probably had generalized anxiety disorder, but couldn't be actively consistently treated for that. And he was just holding together a family where mom did the best that she could, but couldn't do a lot because of depression and anxiety. Like us as kid, as two kids were a lot for her to handle. I remember she was scared of driving very often unless it was like small little trips. And so, yeah, it sort of curtailed what activities we could and couldn't do as, as kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said that about your dad that you think he had a general anxiety disorder, but however, he was in the military and he had, he had a particular position that was high up and stigmatism, especially back then. Now the military is uh, much better about encouraging you to get help and that sort of thing. But back then it was seen as a weakness if, you know, you if you needed any type of counseling or psychological care, it was seen as a weakness. And depending on the degree of the, what they saw as the weakness, you could be medically discharged. Yeah. So that's probably one of the reasons why he didn't address it, him, whatever was going on with him himself. That's one, he was... He was just trying to keep the family afloat, dealing with your mom and trying to help raise you all. And then also his own fear of what would happen to his career. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it was a second career for him because he was in retail pharmacy. It was moving too fast, too much, too many hours to keep climbing that ladder. And, and it was a second, it was a career move, you know, a second career move. And, and you're right. I mean, his other fear was he had to stay technically deployable mm-hmm. and my mom's mental health could like, like he had higher ups above him who protected him, who, you know, from, from that being known because my mom's diagnosis could have prevented him from being technically deployable. And then he would have been discharged for that too. And thankfully it was a friend. Yeah. His last two positions were with the Pentagon and it was a friend who was head of psychiatry or psychology who said, Hey, you know, your last three years, you should start treatment for trauma because, you know, by the time that they would like process paperwork, like you'd be you know, retiring anyways. And as, and he's continued treatment for mental health for himself. You know, my mom's always had resources and treatment, Mm -hmm. but, but for him getting that, it's brought us so much closer together. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that with us. I know that was very difficult to deal with. So let's talk about growing up when you knew you were same sex attracted or gay you know i think at the time i think at the time it was what am i i knew i was different because i would have these experiences like at the end of fifth grade during the summer this kid from my class like initiated sort of exploration experimentation i was i was down but then you know i go home and i'm like oh what have i done and i would like talk to my parents i can only imagine now as a parent they probably had no idea what to say like i was so open i'm like what does that mean what's is that bad? Is that wrong? Does that make me? And I can't remember what words I used when I was younger. As soon as I was aware of the word gay, I probably was like wondering, am I gay? Why do I keep having like experimentation, like sexual experimentation with guys my age? And then, you know, I'm always keeping this line of communication open. My parents kept saying like, it's normal to experiment. It doesn't mean that you're gay. These things happen, you know, we'll see what happens. And I would say it was definitely summer after 10th grade. And I was getting closer and closer with a friend who was on the swim team. And, and I definitely fell in love with him. And once I knew that like emotions were involved, I'm like, I, I think I'm gay. Mm. Um, and yeah, that when emotions were involved is when I was like, oh, and I, you know, I was heartbroken because he didn't reciprocate, right? Like he like, ran away and like, mm. I was grieved. But, so he didn't reciprocate to your attraction to him. And so you told him you were attracted to him? Yeah. I mean, he, he like stopped talking to me because again, we ended up experimenting and he was like, he ran away and I was like, oh, I'm in love with him. Mm. And yeah, and that was the shock that I realized, oh my gosh, I'm in love with him. And of course, you know, one thing that's interesting is looking back as we were becoming friends, I was aware that his parents were not cool with him hanging out with me. And that's definitely because of looking back, I realized that's because they're like, 
this kid is gay, right? But I didn't understand that tension at the time. They, yeah, They kind of picked up on that when you were gay and that's when you realized someone else was kind of picking up on this. Yeah. Yeah. Other than like in fourth grade when someone was like, you're a fag. And then I like went home and said to my parents, like, what's a fag? And they were like, ah. like <laughs> I remember that they didn't know how to respond. And I remember it was a thing, but I don't remember them being mad at me for asking, just that it was uncomfortable, that it was a disturbance. And so, and I remember my mom, my mom was the one who usually had these talks with me. And my, I think my dad was there. You know, my mom's like, well, it's, you know, a man who's in love with a, another man. So fourth grade, there was like that instance where someone called me that. And I just wonder if these were people's ways, my whole life of labeling that I was different. It was clear to them that I was different. Hmm. That is interesting. And so I started going to like Youth Quest group. I remember, and it was like youth group in Dayton, Ohio. It would have been like 1994, like three or four. Yeah, four, somewhere in there. Yeah, four, it would have to have been. Summer of 94. It was interesting. Like, it's interesting to remember, like, you know, fast forward now to summer after 10th grade that, you know, I was giving my friend ride to morning swim practices. And like, I think his family was grateful for the rides, but like, whenever I would come over to his house, like we had to hide this friendship. Mm. And it was before, remember, like it ended when, again, when he initiated wanting to experiment with me. They were initiators. <sighs> and for you, it was continuously confirming how you already felt. But then after they no longer wanted to have anything to do with do you think that that was a societal issue for them of how they would be accepted or yeah I definitely think that there's always I think we were both aware of the societal and parental pressure that we weren't supposed to be friends or weren't supposed to be this close both societal and parental with his parents but then I also think like, like I hold space and room that like, it is healthy to experiment. And so, you know, perhaps that's when he realized like, oh, this isn't me. But then of course, there's definitely another level of shame because if there wasn't societal shame, I think people should be able to realize, oh yeah, this isn't me. I'm not gay. Let's keep being friends. Mm. And if there wasn't that societal stigma around the whole thing, then it'd be cool to just still keep being friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So did he go to church with you also, or was he? Not? No, they went to a different church. They weren't Catholic. I was Catholic. And so we didn't go to church together. So after high school, you went to college. And what was college life like for you? It was... It was crazy. Like, I mean, if I can rewind it a little bit, you you asked how was college. The rest of high school was kind of rocky. Like, you know, a lot th there would be bullying. My friend Sarah was like, we were in the alternative crowd, and she was like rough around the edges. So if like someone bullied me or pushed me into a locker, she'd like go after him. Like, no, Sarah, you're gonna make it worse because I have a girl standing up for me. 
and still trying to figure out who I was. Like my parents weren't the biggest fans. It didn't go over well when I came out came out, you know, and, and I don't blame them. It was, again, the mid nineties. They had a completely different reference being grown adults during the eighties and the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. Things I'm still learning about through documentaries to see how much silence there was around AIDS and getting people the help that they needed. But I was aware that it was not okay to be gay. I eventually stopped going to the youth group. I went with my best friend, Shannon. We're still best friends to this day. Hmm. And in youth group, Shannon decided that she wasn't a lesbian. And I decided I'm definitely gay. And it was interesting to meet other kids my age in the greater Dayton, Ohio area who were gay. You know, I definitely fell in with like, like I went to a couple raves with friends. I would like go out dancing. And so, I, you know, I definitely kind of like fell into the party crowd. And so college was super affirming because there were resources, mm. but in college, the drama and the cattiness and the judging from other gays started happening because we're all so insecure. Mm. And like, I made enemies. Yeah, I made enemies. I was shady. They were shady. And I just started... I just wanted to hide from everyone. And I'm like, this isn't working out. Like I moved out of my house because my parents got upset that like I would go out clubbing. And so I moved in with some friends and it just, oh, it was such a mess. It was, and so my parents let me move back in. And I also, I also stopped my second semester of college. I did a complete withdrawal from all classes to do inpatient mental health care because I was feeling suicidal. I was deeply depressed. And so I withdrew from all classes, moved back home after the mental health care, inpatient mental health care. And, and that's when I was like, I need a grounding. I don't think, quote unquote, this life is for me anymore. I'm going to need a solid, family with a wife and me and we're going to raise some kids and I, I didn't want I wanted religion but I didn't want the Catholic church at first I thought I wanted to be a Catholic priest there was so much exploration and my mom was like don't you want to have a wife <laughs> and so I was like okay maybe a different religion and I found the Mormon church mm-hmm Interesting. Okay, so how did you find the Mormon church? Well, I had had a friend who was very kind and caring. His name was Corey. And we would like walk home from high school together. And he never mentioned much about his church. When I was really, really struggling, he's like, well, here's a copy of the Book of Mormon. He's like, sometimes it brings me comfort. He's like, you, he, but he didn't push it on me or anything. He didn't go for the hard sell. I saw it as an act of love. Like I would give someone a rosary if I was Catholic. So, you know, like a good Catholic, I put it in my glove compartment with my rosary. <laughs> and... And then I just started thinking about, I don't know. I was like, tell me more about your church. And he's like, really? 
And, you know, so I started taking the discussions with the Mormon missionaries and it, it provided love, acceptance, answers, structure, community, because all I knew as a, as a teenager was that things at home were so volatile, so volatile. Mm. And, and again, to me, dad just seemed like controlling and angry. I didn't realize that secretly he's like scared and holding it all together. Right. Just, mm. just trying to flow from, I get that now as an adult, like what would I have done with like child John? Right. Mm. So you found it to be accepting love, etc., but not within within your sexuality. So you were repressing your sexuality at that time. So they didn't necessarily know that you were gay. Is that correct? Well, actually, they did need to know that because to join, like somehow they ask you about past transgressions mm -hmm. as a part of a baptism interview. And they're like, have you had past homosexual transgressions is a question they ask everyone. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes. And so then I had to have a meeting with the mission president, because if you've had past homosexual transgressions, then you have to like confess that to the mission president, promise you'll never do it again. And I knew I would never do it again because I'm like that life. I thought it just meant like club kids and like, no, and no. And so we're just, we're done with that. I'm stopping that. I'm sure I'm bisexual. You know, I have, I had a mo I had emotional attraction to women. I just figured the sexual attraction would flow. <laughs> And so I became the best darn Mormon that you could ever be, you know, and, and I, I wanted to go on a mission. So I prepared to go on a mission. You have to wait a year to go through all the temple ordinances and then get a mission call. And, you know, it's around every corner. Like I'm in the missionary training center and it just wasn't working. And so they gave me like a mental health honorable discharge. But I wonder how much of that was due to my queerness. Mm -hmm. Because like when I was in the missionary training center, someone was tapping their foot in the bathroom stall and it scared me to death, like signaling, right? Mm -hmm. And that scared me. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. And I reported it to my like priesthood leader in the missionary training center. And I, I just, I think they gave me like, they put me on, I said, I'm having a lot of anxiety and they put me on this like hardcore antipsychotic. And my dad, who was upset that I was Mormon, was like, I can't believe they put you on that. He's like, of course you could, you know, you could never be awake during the day. They, they set you up to release you. Mm. And I, again, I wonder if it's because of my queerness. Like I've never been able to hide that. Like, this is who I am. People, people ask, have you always been this theatrical? <laughs> like language <laughs> okay so so they discharge you from going on a mission is that what they did okay so then they, they kind of it's kind of like a disqualification to go on this missions trip but they call it a discharge okay and so and then also you were on this medication and you were really trying to not participate in what would be considered a same sex or homosexual acts or sin 
qualify you from being worthy to use your priesthood, worthy to go to the temple. And going to the temple is about being worthy in the sight of God. And and so because I didn't sin, I, you know, I got this like honorable release. And so then I moved out to Utah where I, I lived with this family that was really awesome, but it was tough for me. Again, I'm there in Utah trying to be a good, worthy Mormon. I'm applying to get into college. I applied to BYU and I'm waiting and just trying to not sin. And, and by then... I think I was starting to use the term same-sex attraction, you know, that, that I'm aware that I have same-sex attraction, but we're not doing that because that's not Heavenly Father's plan for his children. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father's plan for his children in the Mormon church is, you know, marriage to a woman and the temple and having kids. And, and so as the wife comes into the picture. Yeah, I met her. So I get into BYU and I I met my ex-wife at BYU. And before I met my ex-wife, I met someone else. <laughs> yeah, I had had a, I had had like a serious relationship before my ex-wife. And we got engaged, like this other woman, we we got engaged and then she was like like a month in she's like, "Have you had past homosexual transgressions?" And I was like, Well, yeah. And so she broke off the engagement and it rocked me. Mm -hmm. And so a year later when I met my now ex-wife, and so I just told her like second date, I'm having a great time with you, but I need you to know something. In high school, I dated guys, homosexual transgressions, all in the past, same sex attraction, but it's all good because I thought that the only secure life that I could have would be marriage with a woman. It's interesting how much mental health played into me wanting security with the Mormon church. Mm-hmm. And that's me looking back. I didn't realize that at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we keep dating, we get married in the temple. One of my friends, Shannon from YouthQuest, right? Shannon's like, you join the Mormon church and you're getting married in the temple. She's like, why are you going back in the closet? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not. That That's not like what's happening here. And so then I like cut her out of my life for a time period. And, and it was amazing. You want to talk about like reconnections? It was amazing to reconnect with Shannon when I was in grad school. She like came and like hung out with me and my ex-wife and yeah. You met your ex-wife. What did she think about that? I think I think she was pretty down with it because she was still navigating something with a guy. And then all of a sudden, two years later, she couldn't get engaged to this guy. She met this woman who's who's now her partner of of I don't know how many years. And she's like, John, I'm bi. And I'm like, well, I have same-sex attraction. It's okay. Like I, it's crazy, right? Like and I'm great. I'm so grateful that she took the journey that she did because I became close friends with her and her partner. And she was always like, John, what if you had, she's like, did you ever think that maybe it was just the club club crowd? And I'm like, no, no, no. Heavenly father's plan. Going to keep doing this. Like, she's like, what if you had met like a stable, grounded, nice young man? <laughs> and she was, if you were sure where you were, 
with your uh, marriage yeah in another sense yeah i think so and i think she was trying to be as respectful as she could of my marriage she was super respectful and but yes she's like john are you okay are you sure and it's crazy because i'm like i'm not going back in the closet like that's not what this is so she thought okay you're you're repressing you're going back in the closet or you're going in the closet and you're thinking no i've completely changed the mormon church has helped me you know process this it's helped me change my ways i want a wife and family and this is me now that's what you were kind of telling her but in her knowing you before she's I don't want to say suspicious, but she's like, are you sure this is you now? Like, are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. And, and gosh, it's amazing to remember. We didn't talk about this over coffee. Right. So it's amazing to remember this with you now, because I think that's a sacred moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's one of those sacred moments where soul to soul, she's trying to check in, but she also honored my words, totally honored my words. She's like, okay, you're good. I'm good. And I wonder if in her heart of hearts, she's like, it'll all play out the way it's supposed to in, in due time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was faithful and, and didn't cheat on my wife. I think it was, you know, I left BYU in 2004 to, you know, I graduated, went to grad school, lots of traumatic things in BYU. Like I remember being in men's chorus with my friend, Justin, and this guy was like, you guys are faggots. And I'm like, why are people behaving like that at this church where it's like, we're supposed to all love one another and we're in men's chorus. Like what about brotherhood? And like, but yeah, the more toxic masculinity, right. Or just the friends. It's been amazing. The friends where I didn't, tell that's where I found the language for same-sex attraction. I was going to therapy at BYU for, yeah, I was going to therapy at BYU basically for this same-sex attraction to like keep on the straight and narrow. (laughs) So you and your wife, oh, you eventually had a child. Yeah. Okay. So you're married, you're White picket fence, American dream, <laughs> you have a child. And in your marriage, though, you, you started to have those struggles. Kind of talk to me about that, like in your marriage, like how you kind of started wondering if Shannon was correct. You know, I came out to my wife as bi in 2013. We got married in 2001. No, maybe 2012. Somewhere around there, I, I came out as as bi. In 2005, though, in grad school, we had a healthy sex life until like 2005. That's when I was turning around 26, 27, somewhere around there. And then like, we thought I had erectile dysfunction. And then my doctor was like, it's probably just the stress of grad school. And so I believed that about myself. You know, I was always open with her. So I was open about like, I think I'm bi, but it meant nothing because I still wanted to be monogamous. I didn't, I knew that we weren't going to open the marriage. And I think another point where I related in And I know I'm all over the place timeline wise. In 2008, as Prop 8 was going down, I'm so glad I was away from BYU because 
I just, I, I remember when I found out, I was able to navigate the Mormon church in Prop A, but everything was mental gymnastics, everything. And I never realized until a year, maybe a year ago or now, like literally now I'm realizing how much trauma I constantly experienced because I didn't fit in that space. And I was doing so much mental gymnastics. And then in 2013, I, we bought a house. Can I go back for those who don't know what proposition eight is? Can you break that down for them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Proposition 8 was this thing in California where they wanted to put something on the ballot where you were that would make same-sex unions illegal. And the Mormon church got heavily involved in the state of California. And they even mobilized like volunteers from Utah to be making phone calls in the state of California. This church that had been not political at all suddenly changed their stance that they would get involved if it was a moral issue. <laughs> but trust and believe, <laughs> trust and believe that they never got involved in any real social justice issues, mm -hmm. right? just things around protecting marriage between a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. Because the church that I joined in 1997, oh, it was a very different church by 2008. And even more different in 2014 when they were very active in the uh, so-called religious freedom in the public square, you know, your right as a religious person to deny goods and services or not do your job if you wanted to exclude LGBTQ folks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we bought a house in 2013. And I think that you know, was like, okay, we're even more nuclear family. Cause I think in grad school, you're living in an apartment, you're around, you know, I'm still in like priesthood quorum. I'm around other guys and enjoying that camaraderie. But we, you know, we had a kid in 2008, bought a house in 2013. That just, I kept getting more and more depressed. And so in summer of 2016, my brave ex-wife, but we were married at the time, my, you know, my, my brave wife said, hey, you won't go to therapy. You're getting more and more depressed. I think I'm gonna have to leave, but I'd really like to do some couples therapy for us to figure that out. Mm. And it would be amazing if you would do individual therapy. And so I started, we started doing couples in 2016. I'm doing individual that summer. Wow, that's really good. She encouraged you to do that. She was very brave. Okay, so through the therapy, because you were doing individual therapy, then you all were doing couples therapy. So what did you find out about yourself? What did you all find out as a couple about each other? The first thing I was able to articulate is I just couldn't do the church anymore. I still saw myself as bi, but really had no clue what that meant, to be quite honest. I had no clue what that Well, for one, you were married to a woman, but you still were attracted uh, to men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yet wasn't really living that because when you're a part of a church that defines identity by a sex act and then pronounces that sex act to be a sin, you never really understand what by a gay, a 
queer or a lesbian identity could even mean. Mm-hmm. It's so, you know, I just knew I'm attracted to men. That's a sin. I'm married to this woman and I have erectile dysfunction. So, so this is the thing though. You just said the, that, it's, that the identity was defined as a sex act. And there's something that you said to me, our initial conversation that I thought was interesting. You said, I am attracted to the whole person or the spirit of that person. Not It's not about just a sex act. And that's how people kind of reduce what it means to be LGBTQ. So kind of walk that through me before we go back to the, the therapy part. Yeah, absolutely. So if if I'm dating a person, like there's emotional attraction, intellectual attraction, and and physical soul to soul attraction. Like it's not just about a sex act. Mm-hmm. Like all of these things, mind, soul, heart, body, they all connect when whenever you're dating someone. These these all interact with each other and they intensify each other but I never knew that because again I had never really dated guys until after my wife and I got divorced and and it is it my experience is that churches that want to dismiss LGBTQ identities, they reduce it to a sin. And that sin would be the sex act. Because the Mormon church still says, I think to this day, like, oh, you're welcome to identify as LGBTQ. You just need to keep God's law of chastity, which is that the sons of Adam will not have sexual relations with the daughters of Eve unless they are legally and lawfully wedded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's very, that prevents you from ever being able to have a relationship. Like Mm -hmm. I, I remember when I was living in Bountiful Utah before I got accepted to BYU and someone, someone was like, I really feel bad for gay folks because like they can't even date or hold hands or kiss because then they'd have to go talk to their bishop about homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was something that you said about when they, something they recently did, something that the Mormon church recently did and you said it was, it was something teeny tiny, but for you it meant the world because it was kind of an acknowledgement. What, what was that? So it wasn't recent. It was, This is sort of me looking back. It was around 2008, BYU decided that you could identify as LGBTQ and not act on it. <laughs> act on, I mean, listen to those words, not act on it. In other words, not be who you are. <laughs> but they don't see it that way, right? Like, like... But yeah, they said you could identify that way. When I was at BYU, you couldn't even say I'm bi or I'm gay. You would be kicked out of BYU. And I cried. I felt a certain way. I felt it in my body. I didn't know what I was feeling, but so much angst, anger, relief, sadness, so many emotions because I was so stifled. Mm. And I still didn't know what it all meant because I still wasn't there on my journey. 
you know, I, I wasn't certainly where I'm at now, mm-hmm. but, but I certainly felt something when people who were at BYU, they, they were allowed to have a student organization. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. They, they could have a student organization? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, so that was really big for you. Okay, so let's go back to now you start feeling pressure because you bought a house, you were really looking like the definition of family with your wife and had you had your daughter yet? Yeah, we she was five when we bought the house. Okay, so so wife, child bought your home and but that you started feeling that pressure and then in that pressure it started to affect what once was a healthy sex life for your you and your wife was now you were struggling. And then in that she suggested that you both go to counseling together, uh, marriage counseling and then that you try individual counseling and you, you agreed. So in, in that counseling, let's go back to what you learned about yourself and then what you learned about your marriage. Yeah. So, and, and just one small thing for listeners, actually our, our sex life became complicated in around 2005, six. Mm-hmm. So that that's when you were having sex less frequently where the doctor's like, Oh, you probably have erectile dysfunction from grad school. And I mean, we kept in that vein and sort of a sort of pretty much sexually unsatisfying marriage for both of us for eight more years until 2013, you know, all, all because of like doing heavenly father's plan. And I, and I feel, I feel really sad for both of us. I feel sad for her. We were just doing what we thought was right. Mm-hmm. I, I have so much love and respect for my ex-wife because we were just doing God's plan. I think in our naivete, we thought that more obedience to the Mormon church would make this all okay Mm -hmm. as long as i kept living god's plan god will make it okay and it'll all be okay in the end when we're dead and living with heavenly father again Mm -hmm. so 2013 i'm getting increasingly depressed every year and finally three years later we, we had talked about divorce several times between 2013 and 2016 but in 2016 she's like last straw it's getting worse each year Let's go to therapy right out of the gate in couples therapy. I'm like, I can't do the Mormon church anymore. It doesn't honor my ways of thinking, my ways of being like my university job at Nebraska Wesleyan honors me as a leader. It honors my like scholarship in gender studies as well as music. They allow me to care about social justice. I was finding an outlet really for who I am Mm -hmm. in the academy, in in higher education. And so I can't do the Mormon church. And in personal therapy, I'm learning to work through tons of traumas to be able to become a more grounded person. I thought I always had to be, the narrative in my head was, I have to be married or I'll end up in the gutter. Like I'll end up, you know, some club kid who's addicted to drugs and alcohol in the gutter. I had this fear of gay life being that. And I need another person. I need a companion. I need a wife specifically Mm -hmm. to help me navigate this world. 
I also thought that like, I didn't like kids and that I just wasn't a parent or I, I also thought I didn't want to own a home and it just turned out, no, I just don't want to do those things with a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I but, just, oh, go ahead. Sorry. It's okay. I was going to say, I, I'm kind of getting emotional for you as you're talking about this because, and for your wife, because I'm just thinking about how you basically feel like in order to live, you have to have her. And just for the amount of pressure that put on her also, and for her trying to help you, you know, navigate this, her willingness to, you know, she sees your struggle and her willingness to try to help you move through this for so many years. And how she just got to the point where she's like, I just can't anymore. And then you got to that same point where you just said, I just can't anymore. And I have to learn how to make a life without a woman beside me. Um, yeah. And that, and that literally, you're right. That is like too much for one person to carry. That's too much to ask of her. It's too much to ask of me. But of course, The church never lays things out in those terms. You just get caught up in it all. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we decided to get a divorce, that that life would be better for both of us, divorced. And I remember still saying to her, you know, I just don't want the narrative to be that this is because of me having same-sex attraction or because I wanted to occasionally drink alcohol socially. Because in the Mormon church, if you drink alcohol, even responsibly, for them, it's the same as if you had a heroin needle hanging out of your arm. Like, you've just lost. And so, so, you know, we, she was amazing in the whole divorce. We got into it together. We got out of it together. We made sure that both of us had what we needed, that I had an apartment. You know, she's very, very humane. And we worked with a mediator. We didn't fight with lawyers. And so well, both of we're you, divorced. Yeah, but both, both of you also, the love for your daughter, you, you did talk about that, that that you wanted you wanted your daughter to know love from you both. And so in that, you were not going to, you're going to try to keep it as beautiful as possible and not make it an ugly experience. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like we both knew that she, in order to be a healthy, happy person, that she should have a lo- I, I honor that she has to have a loving relationship with her mother and, and with me and her mother honors the same thing. And so we co-parent well together, despite having very different ideologies now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mom, mom, mom is still LDS and I honor Lily's LDS religious experience with her mom. And, you know, and, and when she's at my house where we go to first UMC Methodist church where pastor Kirstie Engel is the spiritual leader. Mm -hmm. Yes. Pastor Kirstie and I have had a couple conversations. I appreciate her. (laughs) Okay. So you all decided to get a divorce, but you made it as amicable as possible. You co-parenting well together. And then it was through your, you continued your individual therapy. And it was through that, that you realize. 
<laughs> it was it was through therapy. You know, I was talking to my friend Abby, and she's like, "You hung on to that bi thing until like March." And I'm like, "Did I really?" <laughs> she's like, "Yeah, you did." I, but but I realized like I'm I'm a gay man, and it took a a lot of time and unpacking to also realize I've always I have always been a gay man that loving God made me as a gay man so you believe that God made you the way you are that you are a gay man and you believe that God made you that way yeah because as say that again that he made you to love that way yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To live that way, to love that way. I see, I realized that my, that part, my gay identity is part of how I see the world. And I, we all have tons of different identities, you know, like I'm a swimmer. I do yoga. I'm a professor. I'm a dad. I'm a son. I'm um, a, a brother. I'm gay. And it's not done. Yes, gay and a child of God. And that way of seeing the world, it really is, I see the world differently. So when I wonder, when I wonder, was the Catholic Church that conservative outside of Nebraska? The answer is no, it's not. (laughs) But also, I wonder... I think I see the Catholic church and saw the Catholic church differently because I experienced the world as a gay man. Mm -hmm. So I, I need to start having conversations, you know, because I also experienced the Mormon church differently. It'd be great to start having some conversations with, I I still have a variety of Mormon friends Mm -hmm. and just like, how did you see they'd have to be safe Mormon friends who really do honor that it's, okay for me to be gay mm-hmm. um but yeah i i'm gay i don't have erectile dysfunction and i found out from my therapist like a while after the divorce he's like wait hold on erectile dysfunction that never came up like before during or slightly after the divorce and that's when my therapist told me he said you know the ability to like maintain an erection or have an orgasm he said that becomes more and increasingly hardwired to your sexual attraction as you approach your mid twenties, mid to late twenties. He's like, and that's when you were having these erectile dysfunction issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Like it's, you'll, I, I tell people now, like when I came out to my doctoral advisor, she, she was amazing. And she's like, it was so interesting to always, she always honored who I said I was. My best friends, Jeff and Scott, when I came out to them as bi, they honored who I said I was. They were out gay men, had been out gay men since they were 18. And that's what, you know, my friend Scott was like, we kind of high-fived on the way past each other. He's like, he's like, you were out in high school. I didn't come out till college. And, but everyone honored who I said I was. And, you know, it was no surprise to anyone after the divorce. I'm like, hey, I want to let you know I'm, I'm gay and I've always been gay. I came out to my parents again 
Mm. And I, and I even had a script cause I was nervous cause it didn't go so well when I was 16. And so I was like, Hey dad, I wanted to tell you about something in Lily's life. <laughs> See what I did there. You know, I've, I've, I've recently come out to Lily and let her know that I'm a gay man and and we honor that like, that's an okay way of being. And my dad's like, wait, 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 hold up, hold up. He's like, John, are you trying to tell me that you're gay? And I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, I know. He's like, and I'm sorry that it didn't go so well when you were 16. Mm. He's like, but I've learned a lot in the last 25 years. And I love you and accept you and support you for who you are. It's really beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. When you came out to Lily, how did she respond? So I decided it was time to come out to Lily because when one of my alumni got married, she invited us to the wedding. And the next day, Lily was like, so if you, this was like a year and a half after the divorce, I think. And she's like, when you get if you ever get married again could i be your new wife's bridesmaid and i was like it's time like she had already like six months before that tried to drop jokes about like it would be cool if you and this guy friend got married and i'm like she i think she was low-key like how long are we gonna do this for girl <laughs> wow I think, I think her soul has always seen my soul. Like she would call me, we would play like princess stuff and she would call me queen daddy. <laughs> yeah, I know you all are very close. You're very close to her. That is very interesting. She was calling you queen daddy before you even <laughs> And, and so, yeah, so she does that whole thing. And so we're on a walk already. And I said, you know what, can let's, do you want to stop? Cause I want to talk to you about something serious. And she's like, well, let's keep walking. And I'm like, sure. And, and I said, if I got married again, it would be to a man because I am gay. And, and she said, well, that's just how God made you. She said, God made me with four toes on my left foot and God made you gay and I love you and I accept you. I mentioned one of your, you did a, you made a reference to Romans 8, 37 to 39, which is one of my all time favorite uh, verses about the love of God. Like nothing can separate us from the love of God. And let's talk about that. Like how, how your relationship with God and the love for Jesus, why do you believe you can be gay and be a Christian? You know, I, I think about the way that God works through all of us and the way that God has empowered my life since I've like the more and more that I've become comfortable being 
out and doing God's work and, and ministering and, and being a part of like Kirstie's ministerial team, like the more comfortable and open I've become with myself, the more empowered I've become, the more I see that like, yes, I really do have these spiritual gifts. And it was just something that the Mormon church put upon me to make me feel like I am lesser than or an unworthy of God's love or sinful or wrong. Like I feel that my gifts, those gifts of the spirits talked about in Galatians, I feel those in my interactions with other people. Like God definitely moves in me and through me mm. to give love and to empower others. Mm. And I realized I just moved from Romans 8 to Galatians. <laughs> but I think that because those fruits of the spirit are moving in and through me, empowering me, because I truly believe the best is really yet to come mm. in, in my life and the lives of everyone that God has me touching and being with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the proof of Romans 8, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Mm -hmm. So why would man-made, and I truly do mean man-made, <laughs> right, right, the people who made these rules are white, straight, cisgender males, they made these rules that said all this stuff about you can't be LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that I'm sure that some people would take beef with certain passages of scripture. I'd probably call up Dr. Jonathan Redding at NWU and say, hey, Jonathan, can you help me understand like the different translations and what they could have meant in their historical time? And that's the historian in me. like. Mm -hmm. We have to understand what something meant in its time. But the more that I see that theology should be there to liberate, theology should be there to set the captives free. When, you know, when it talks about how Jesus is like, look, in as much as you've done it unto these, the least, my people, you've done it unto me. Well, who is that? Mm -hmm. I, I think it would be all the marginalized in our current social structures. Mm -hmm. That would include people who experience racism, sexism, heterosexism, who experience the crushing pain of classism, capitalism, of ableism. Mm -hmm. God is asking us to uplift and set the captives free. And I, I think that the relationship that I experience with God is through my life, through my lived experience, where before it was like, you build a relationship, you know, the Mormon church is like, you build a relationship through scripture, reading your scriptures every day, through praying. And I've realized like prayer can be my lived experience, or it can be like the prayer that we had before our session together. My relationship with God could be lived out through how I teach or how I minister, how I connect with a person. Like God put us together mm -hmm. to be together in each other's lives because my next step in my profession is looking at trauma conscious teaching methods. Mm -hmm. And and you are a crusader for like trauma awareness. Mm -hmm. And we need a society that is more trauma conscious. And so I think it's 
like I can be gay and Christian because God would just stop working with me if it wasn't okay, right? <laughs> like, why would all these amazing things be happening? Why would God be using me in so many ways to empower and send love? Love is the answer. Love will keep us together. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts you up where you belong. Well, I have to say, you were a man who you were out then you were in and then you were out again. And that you're, you're again, outing is very recent. Was it 2017? Yeah. And so for me, I myself am on a learning journey before coming into the, the faith or before accepting Jesus as my uh, savior. When I lived in Austin, Texas, I had many friends in the LGBTQ uh, community. And so I've been thinking about my interactions with those friends and one in particular, I loved him like a brother. He was at my house all the time. I loved him like a brother. So if Eddie, if you're out there and you hear this, reach out to me. <laughs> but I just started thinking about that. And then other things that I had learned in the church and it didn't reconcile with what I knew of the people that I knew, the friends that I had, but like you, I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do. So now I feel like I am trying to educate myself and open my heart and my eyes because the thing that gets me is the pain that people put upon people. I mean, it happens with race also in the church. And I can truly say the Lord has been breaking my heart lately and he has wanted me to learn, just learn, not have judgment about it, but just learn. And so I am very grateful that you have generously offered your story, you know, to me to share. And so I want to thank you, John, again, for um, sitting with us. And I'd like to continue to have conversations with you. And who knows, maybe we'll have a part two. Uh, or <laughs> digging deeper. Maybe we'll do something like that. But uh, one thing is for sure is that I am happy to have found a new friend. So I just want to thank you for joining me today. And um, I encourage others, I'll put some resources at the uh, end of the podcast for some books that you can read, podcasts that you can listen to, that you can at least be willing to learn. Thank you so much for having me on today. I too am like grateful to have a new friend and for someone who would care about my story because there's so many other people out there like me and Eddie who need friends like you. I still am grateful that I have a friend like you, a new friend like you. And I'm grateful for all the people who have loved me and, and still will love me moving forward. And yes, to a part two. Oh my gosh, we always have to talk. I'm honored that you want to talk to me. You are a boss. Well, you have a lot to offer. I, I only, when I first met you, I only knew just a little bit about you and I was already impressed. And then once I sat with you and you started telling me this, your story, I was just like, wow, blown away. And I felt it was something that my listeners I felt it's something that people need to hear. And you know what? That we're all people. We're all human beings. We're all made in Imago Dei. We're all God's children. And that is the overarching 
reason of why I wanted to do this particular episode. Can I say one more thing? I know you, you struck on something, that Imago Dei. I told Pastor Kirsty, like, it is through her preaching that I'm realizing that I am God's plan. That is so different than, you know, Mormon God's plan, where here's the rules and you have to keep them. You are God's plan. I am God's plan. And the thing that I'm really working on is realizing that I've spent my whole life trying to figure out what problems and judgments are people going to place upon me so that I can try to navigate them and not have that happen. And no one needs to be living like that. Thanks again. Thank you. Whether we agree or disagree isn't the point of today's episode. As I stated before, I didn't want to come at this as an argument to be won, a debate, or as apologetics. The point is to listen to a story like John's as a way to seek to understand, to see humanity, and acknowledge each person as a child of God made in his image. I'm learning, and I encourage you to do your own work. Here are a few resources I'll link in the show notes. A different podcast to listen to that gives two sides of this perspective is Love by Neighborhood, Episode 9, Where the Gospel Meets LGBTQ. You can also listen to Rachel Gilson as she answers Gen Z's questions about Christianity, sexuality, and gender identity. Check out the following books. Embracing the Journey, A Christian Parent's Blueprint to Loving Your LGBTQ Child by Greg and Lynn McDonald with Beth Jessenow. Risking Grace, Loving Our Gay Family and Friends Like Jesus by Dave Jackson. Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. And check out the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Director Preston Sprinkle has written a few books. His latest is Embodied, Transgender Identities, The Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. But just so you know, I have not read this one. Don't forget to give Grit, Getting Real, Immersed in Truth, a five-star rating, follow, and share. Also, check out my other podcast on Life Audio, Mama Take Heart. It's designed to help moms of Gen Z girls be the compassionate, gospel-centered, and influential voice in their girl's life. Getting Real Immersed in Truth podcast is produced and edited by me, Barbrina Rettel, original music by composer Michael Coffey of Handcrafted Studios. Connect with me on Instagram at Barbrina Rettel and check out my website, barbrinarettel.com. Until next time, keep your grit up by having compassionate conversations and getting real while immersed in truth.